The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning. When we think about the Christmas story, a lot of times what happens is the most insignificant things become the most significant. And very easily we can read past things that are so profound and are telling us a story. And it's so true with what we see, uh, especially at the beginning of Matthew. We've been in the beginning of Matthew through this Advent season in the series, um, looking at these titles that Matthew, before he ever gets to his gospel, tells us about Christ, tells us about who he is, and tells us uh, something about his character and what he comes to do. Uh, and so we've been paying attention to those, digging deeper. God forgive us for not being good students of the word and waiting for a time like this. But this season, we can go and we can sing these songs and we can talk about these titles of Christ. But have we really dug to the depths to see the stories that are behind them? We're going to continue that today. We've talked about Jesus being um, the, the Christ and what that means is him as Messiah. We've talked about Jesus being the son of David, the son of Abraham. And now we want to look at him as Emmanuel. So if you have your copy of scripture, you can turn to Matthew chapter one. We're continuing to look at that opening genealogy that Matthew gives to us. And then those opening after the genealogy, there are some opening titles that he gives to us going back and quoting from the old Testament. Again, he's setting up where he's going with the rest of the gospel. So these are very important things to pay attention to. Let's begin in verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So think about this for a moment. There is a crisis situation, and that's what Matthew's trying to help us to understand. There is this man in the story who finds himself in this predicament, that his wife is now with child. He knows it's not his because they are still in what we would call in that day and time, from a Jewish perspective, it's a betrothal period. A betrothal period is much like what we would call our engagement period. It's a time when you're not officially married yet, but you are betrothed to one another. Now, the only difference is the betrothal period for Jewish people in this day and time was just as binding as the marriage ceremony itself. But there was this year to really understand the background of that person, understanding and, and finding out who their family is and what's behind it before you actually come to the ceremony. There was also a lot of preparations that had to happen for the actual ceremony. So there was this year of betrothal. Joseph finds himself in this year and all of a sudden his wife shows up pregnant. And you can imagine that, right? Being in that situation, this, this hopeful marriage that you have now all of a sudden seems to be imploding. This promise of a future, this promise of this great life, this person that you thought was going to be faithful to you and you alone, now all of a sudden you have these questions. You have these doubts. There is this situation that seems insurmountable. It seems like everything is falling apart. And look what it says in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. So there's a messenger in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I want you to pay attention to these next couple of verses here. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. All right, now, Matthew is telling us something very specific, and he's used this whole story. He tells us this narrative because this narrative is important for understanding something that he goes back and quotes from Isaiah, this prophet. And he says that all of this happened, this dream, the situation with Joseph, all of this happened so that something that was spoken a long time ago would be fulfilled. So Matthew is writing to predominantly a Jewish audience. What he's doing by writing is seeking to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised from the Old Testament prophecies. Mark, not so much. Mark writes to the Roman or the Greek audience. But Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And so he is rich in going back and quoting the Old Testament to show that Jesus is this promised Messiah. Matthew is also different from the Gospel of Luke in the sense that Luke focuses on Mary and her experience. But Matthew, here in the birth narrative, focuses on Joseph and his divine encounter. Notice that Matthew says... All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now, that's important because whenever we see that a New Testament author tells us this happened because of this prophecy, then we need to be good students of the word and go back and study, well, where did that prophecy come up and what was the situation of that prophecy? So if you turn back to Isaiah, you'll find that this comes from Isaiah chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. There is this story that is is developing with this king of Judah. Now in chapter seven of Isaiah verse 14, it says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, so we know that that's where Matthew is quoting from. And he's saying that this current situation that Joseph finds himself in, and he has this divine encounter, was an answer to this prophecy that was spoken by Isaiah. Notice, though, that Matthew provides something Isaiah does not. He says the definition of Emmanuel. Now, in the original text, it doesn't tell us what Emmanuel means, but Matthew makes a point to say, Emmanuel, and notice in your text, in parentheses, God with us. God with us. So Matthew is making a point to say this is very important for us to pay attention to. Now, with this little title and with this definition that Matthew also provides, Matthew is telling us more than just a name. He's also describing God's purpose in sending Jesus. And he's also telling us something about how we are to understand Jesus. So to put it in more simple terms, Matthew is announcing who Jesus is, and he's also announcing what Jesus came to do. Are you with me so far? Who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. So let's start with that first part, who Jesus is. Matthew is saying that Jesus is God 100% and fully. He is Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us, not God partially with us, not God coming to us through someone else. It is God with us. 
And so remember that we have studied all of these different titles thus far in this Advent series from Matthew. We studied that Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He was set apart for a very specific purpose that God the Father had intended for him to go and set people free, to proclaim good news and to defeat sin and death. He's also the son of David. He's the long-awaited king. He's the champion who brings with him true liberation and true healing. And Jesus is also the son of Abraham. He's the long-awaited true and better promised son of blessing, that miraculous son that comes to us to be a healing and hope for the nations. Jesus is the one sent by God to save his people from their sins. And now we see that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So Matthew is making this statement strongly right here at the onset of his gospel about who Jesus is. And ultimately, all of those come to one definition, and that is this. Jesus is God. He is God with us. He's come to rescue us. He's come to fight our battles for us. He is God in the flesh. He is God who has come to us. So Matthew is making the same claim that John makes in his gospel at the very beginning of the gospel of John, which we're going to get to. So we're not going to spend a whole lot of time of that, but I want to allude to that because that's where we're going here after the first of the year. John says that the word was with God at the very beginning. He also tells us that the word was God. He tells us that the word became flesh. And then he says that this word dwelt among men, dwelt among us. And the word dwelt is the same word in Hebrew as tabernacled. So God literally tabernacled. So this, that's another allusion back to the Old Testament. The tabernacle was this thing they had in the wilderness where God was among his people. So somehow Jesus is the answer to the tabernacle or the tabernacle was this allusion to what God intended to do in the future. So Jesus is God who has now come down and in human form, the human form, the actual body, the physicalness of Jesus is the tabernacle and God has come to dwell among his people in flesh and blood. That's what all the gospel writers are pointing us to. And verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. This is from John. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus makes this invisible God visible, John tells us in verse 18. Jesus is the clearest revelation of God, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He's clearer than experience. He's clearer than rational or intellectual thought. He's clearer even than scripture for he is God in the flesh and the scriptures actually testify about him, which John chapter five, verse 39 tells us. So Paul, when we think about his writings in the New Testament, he communicates all of this nearly identically to the gospel writers. In Colossians 1.15, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Also in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, we're told the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So the words image and exact representation, they have to do with what is visibly and physically seen, okay? So formally, God was not seen, but when Jesus came onto the scene, all of a sudden now God that was invisible has now become visible. Once, what was once hidden has now become visible so that all can see. 
So when you see Jesus, the gospel writers want us to understand you have seen God. Now, later on in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says that for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Again, I want to reiterate, he's not saying that Jesus is a part of God, that God is using Jesus to display a part of who he is. He is saying that the fullness of the deity, the Godhead, dwells bodily in the person of Jesus. So in case there's any question, Paul makes it clear that Jesus wasn't just a picture of God. Jesus is fully God and all of God dwelt in Jesus. So Jesus is like this tabernacle that the fullness of God dwells in. Do you see this? Now that's only part of what Matthew's communicating. There's another half of that. Not only who Jesus is, but the other part of that is what Jesus came to do. So, so why did Jesus, who is God, take on flesh and blood and come and dwell among us? Why did he do that? That's great that he did it. It's great that it was alluded to in the Old Testament, but why? What's the purpose? Well, this has to do with the what of Jesus' coming to us. And this is a descriptive explanation of his role that Matthew is giving to us. One commentator says it this way, Jesus is bringing the presence of God to man. And with that, he became in the flesh to bring rescue from certain destruction. Okay, so I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Jesus came to man to rescue him from certain destruction that lay before him. Okay, you got that in the back of your mind? Because this is going to be important as we unpack what Matthew is saying here. So this helps us, and it's good information for us to know. But Matthew is saying infinitely more than just helpful information about Jesus. He's actually declaring this astounding good news of exactly what it is that Jesus has come to do. To understand the message that Matthew is giving to us or communicating to us about what he came to do, we first have to understand the bad news. And the bad news is found in the context of the Old Testament. And what we find there specifically is this quote that Matthew uses. And again, it comes from Isaiah chapter 7 and 8 more specifically. And this is the bad news. This is a story about this king of Judah. His name is King Ahaz. If you're familiar with this story from Isaiah, then you know a little bit about what's going on here. Go ahead to the next slide. I think it has a map on it. I want to just show you kind of the situation that's developing here. Okay, so you can see where there is Israel, and you see below that there is actually Judah. Now, way up to the north east, you can see there that there is Assyria. Now, Syria is just north of Israel. So there's a difference in Syria and Assyria during this time, okay? Now, go to the next slide. Just kind of show you right there. That would be Syria, okay? So Syria and Israel are right there. Syria and Israel begin to threaten Judah. The reason is Assyria, go ahead to the next slide, is threatening to come and defeat them. So what happens is Syria and Israel are saying Judah needs to be on their side. Now, Judah finds herself in this situation because she either can wait and not agree to help out Israel 
or Syria or give in to them and hope that us Syria comes down and defeats both of them and somehow she'll be spared. Or she has to join in with Israel and Syria to try and defeat the Assyrians when they do come because they've already said they're coming. And then the hope says they can defeat them. But even if they defeat them, now they're in cahoots with these other two nations and more than likely they're going to overtake them. Now, not only this, go to the next slide. There's also a problem of this place called Philistia. Now, Philistia is where the Philistines are from. They begin to join in on it as well. So now you can see that Judah is absolutely surrounded. Philistia is threatening them. Israel is threatening them. Syria is a threat to them. And Assyria is a threat to all of them during this day and time. So that is the situation that we find them in. When political diplomacy failed to convince Judah, Israel and Syria began now to march down and to attack them. And also Philistia used the instability of what was being created by Israel and Syria to also begin to surround on all sides. Certain defeat is imminent in this situation. Matter of fact, if you look at your text in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 12, it says this about the residents, the king and the residents of Judah at this time. It says, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Now, do you, do you understand that kind of fear that has been put in their heart? So in light of this impending attack, what God does is he sends his prophet Isaiah and Isaiah's son to address the king of Judah, whose name is Ahaz. The primary message that Isaiah was to bring to them was this, trust me, I'm going to come to your rescue. I'm going to do this for your good, and I'm going to do this for my glory. So listen to all that God actually promises to reassure Ahaz that he's still on the throne and that he's going to come to Judah's rescue. First, he sent Isaiah and his son, whose name is Shir Jashub, which means a remnant will return. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3. If you look at verse 4, we see the second thing. He tells Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. The third thing he tells him in verse 4, he reminds Ahaz that these two powers are nothing. He actually calls them a smoldering stump. In other words, they are merely like this stump smoldering at each ends that a bonfire has left after the bonfire is long gone or been put out. The fourth thing, he reminds Ahaz that they are threatening to conquer Judah and to place a puppet king on the throne of David in Judah. That's in, in verse 6. Now, this is intended to remind Ahaz that God made a promise to David over and over and over again that one of his descendants would sit on his throne. So what they are threatening is that God is not going to be able to do this. We're going to overthrow and we're going to put our own king over you. And so God reminds them, listen, I'm faithful and I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. There's going to be a descendant of David who will sit on this throne forever. The fifth thing in verse seven, the Lord simply says what they claim, what they are attempting, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. Finally, God gives one last promise. 
Judah and King Ahaz are invited, even encouraged, to cry out to God for help, to watch as he comes to the rescue. And there's a quote from Psalm 106 that's this crying out to God to come and to rescue. So look at chapter 7 of Isaiah and verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. What does that mean? Well, in essence, God is saying that their attack will not happen because he's ready to go to the deepest depths or the highest heights to help them if they will just call out to him and trust him. So the question on the table to Ahaz is this, listen to me, who will you trust? Will you trust the all-wise, all-powerful Lord of hosts, or are you going to take matters into your own hands? Where are you going to place your hope, Ahaz? Will it be in your own wisdom? Will it be in the strength of your limited army? Will it be in something here on earth? Or will you put your hope in the limitless understanding, the limitless wisdom, and the limitless power of the Lord of hosts? So King Ahaz, surrounded by the armies of Syria and Israel and Philistia. So remember this time, this is after the division. There was a, a war. So Judah and Israel are not the same. They are enemies of each other at this time. So they're surrounded by all of their enemies. And despite absolute rock-solid certainty of God's promises that over and over and over again he gives, Ahab decides to put his hope in Assyria. He puts his hope that somehow Assyria will come and defeat Israel and defeat Syria and spare Judah. Literally saying to Isaiah in verse 12, after the prophet has spoken these promises of the Lord to him, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now it sounds like a very humble statement, doesn't it? it sounds very pious, but in reality, as one author puts it, Ahaz remained addicted to his illusion of control and competence. In essence, he's saying, no thanks, I got this. Now, next we see how God responds. So God makes these incredible promises. Hey, I know what you're up against. I know what it looks like, but listen, I'm gonna be faithful to my promises. How about it, King Ahaz? And King Ahaz says, no thanks, I've got this. Then God responds, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we think of this as very positive news. That's not the way it was intended when it was first spoken. It's bad news. It's bad news because God promises to come near and to be with them, but not in the way they would ever hope. He's now going to come to them as judge. The text says that he's going to whistle and call down the flies of Assyria. He's going to call up the bees of Egypt, and they are going to serve as God's hired razor, forcefully shaving the beard of Judah. Now, you have to understand the context of that. In Near Eastern cultures at this time, forcefully shaving a man's beard was a sign of humiliation and a sign of defeat. So the very thing Ahaz looked to and hoped for, to for rescue in this time where he feels pressed in on every side is the very thing that actually will turn out to be his defeat and his demise. 
In that day, Isaiah 8, 8 indicates that the people will cry out, Oh, Emmanuel, oh God, come be with us. Oh God, come and rescue us. There is this profound application here. The story of Ahaz is a story of a man. A man where God comes to him and says, will you trust me? And the man says, no thanks, I've got this. Then if you are not going to trust me and respond to me in the right way, then you're gonna experience the logical end of trusting in an empty power like Assyria. And in the end, you're gonna be crying out to me to rescue you. Now that's the bad news, but there's also some good news in this. The good news is where the gospel is found in this same story. First, it's in the text of Isaiah. There is this glimmer of hope in the text of Isaiah because the Lord is coming to be with them, but he is coming in judgment. But as we continue to study Isaiah, what we learn is that there is this hope of rescue and everything in this rescue has to do with this son that's gonna be born to a virgin. This son, according to Isaiah chapter nine, is the righteousness son of David. He's gonna bring light into the darkness in verses one and two. He's gonna bring peace to the earth in verses six and seven. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father and the prince of peace. The rest of Isaiah's gospel then explains how this peace will be procured. It's gonna be procured because this son of righteousness is going to come as a suffering servant and he's gonna come as an atoning sacrifice. And what we learn is that this son born of a virgin who is in the line of David, who is the light of the world, who will usher in peace, who is this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this prince of peace, is the one who will walk to the slaughter as a lamb who is silent before his shears, who will die so that we may be healed and live. Now don't miss again the image of being sheared like a sheep. Remember, in the same story, he's already said to Ahaz, this is what's gonna happen to you. Like, like the bees and, and, and uh, these, these insects are gonna come and they're gonna be like the razor that will tear off your beard, which is a picture. Instead, the gospel story says, but I'm gonna send one who's going to take that punishment for you. What's the picture that we have of Jesus at his crucifixion? His beard is being plucked out. So as is that this miraculous promised son is gonna be our rescue. In this way, the bad news for ancient Israel ends up becoming good news for the rest of the world. This brings us to the text in Matthew and the good news that Matthew is proclaiming. So against this dark backdrop of God with us as judge, Matthew is now calling on this same picture as God with us in grace. Jesus is the promised son, Matthew says, of Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, and what is also mentioned in Isaiah chapter nine. Jesus is the promised king, and through him, we will be restored. Through him, we will experience peace. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah through whom we will be redeemed. Jesus is the one who has come to rescue us from certain defeat of death, hell, and the grave, which is the result of our sin. 
And how do we know this? Well, Matthew says that it's because he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. But how do we know if he is God with us to judge or God with us to save? And here's what Matthew wants you to understand. Because he's God with us in Jesus. Matthew and Luke both note that his name is not just Emmanuel, but that his name was going to be called what? Jesus. What does Jesus mean? God saves. So the same picture, what happened in Isaiah, when he goes to the king and the king says, you know what, I just can't trust God like that. I'm gonna put my hope in Assyria that somehow this is gonna work itself out. And God says, what you've put your hope in is empty and it is going to be your own destruction. But even though you have denied my help and you've turned away from hope, I'm not giving up. I'm gonna bring this story around. And as I come to you in judgment, I will also come to you in grace. What you have denied help for Judah, I will extend that hope and help to all the nations. Jesus is God who has come to us in salvation. He is God who has come to us to rescue. Jesus is God in the flesh, come to rescue us from our certain destruction of sin and death. Because only God can rescue us. Only God can reconcile a sinful man back to a holy, righteous God. It's like uh, Athanasius said, the son of God became man so that men might become sons of God. So all the world's religions, they all call us to do something, to be accepted by God, giving us the impression that somehow we can climb up to God if we can get our ducks in a row, if we can get our act together, if we can get rid of the bad and do more good. Only Christianity says, no, you can't climb to God. He came down to you. And why? To rescue you from certain destruction. Thanks be to God, we don't have to climb up to him. He came down to us. And notice that he comes down to us in the form of a helpless little baby. Not something that you want to put your hope in, right? Not something you're going to say, that's going to save me from my worst enemies. There's something about the situation that says, I don't know if I can trust this. I don't know if God's going to be faithful in this. I don't know if he's going to come through and do what he said he's going to do. Now, don't miss the question facing us in this Christmas story that Matthew is giving to us. Matthew is retelling the story of Ahaz in the story of Joseph. Like Ahaz, Joseph's name, his reputation, his dreams, and even the throne of David, his family, are being threatened by this situation. Like Ahaz, Joseph was faced with this question, are you going to trust God or are you going to lean on your own understanding? Like Ahaz, Joseph was sent a messenger proclaiming something that went against all rational thought. It was inconceivable for Joseph to believe what this angel was telling him. And like Ahaz, Joseph faced insurmountable odds and he faced his own crisis of faith. Yet in this story, Joseph acts differently than King Ahaz. He trusted God. 
He listened to the messenger and he obeyed the message. In faith, he took Mary. In faith, he adopted her son. In faith, he named him Jesus, just as he was instructed to do. The question Matthew is forcing all of us as his audience to really think about is, now who are you gonna trust? The infinitely loving God who is with you and for you or your own wisdom? your own abilities to solve your own problems. Ahaz faced certain destruction. In his despair, he was invited to trust God, to see him provide, to see him show up. Ahaz chose to go his own way, to trust in Assyria, and ultimately trust in himself and his own wisdom. Joseph faced with this same situation. It looks like his wife has been adulterous. His promised marriage is about to crumble. His dream's about to be crushed. But he's invited to trust God. He's invited to see God fulfill promises both to Joseph, but not just to Joseph, but to the entire world. Joseph, in this story, chooses to trust God. And Matthew adds, all this took place to fulfill God's promise through Isaiah the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. You see, you and I are forced with the same choice. We are infected with the same disease that Ahaz was infected with, and ultimately that Joseph was infected with. That is the sin of rebelling against God, of choosing to follow our own wisdom of trying to make sense of our situations from our own points of view instead of trusting God with what he has said is true and right and good. We are in ourselves without rescue. We are left to ourselves without hope. However, like Ahaz, even though we are faced at every corner with all of our enemies, we have a choice. We can either trust in ourselves and our own wisdom and our own abilities, (laughs) or we can trust in a child. Now, which one are you gonna trust with? You're not gonna put your trust in a child, not from your own human perspective, right? Excuse me. But what you're gonna do is go, you know what? You know, I know better than a child. I'm stronger than a child. I I can make things happen better than a child. That's why the gospel story starts in this way. Because to accept the fact that a child can bring you salvation takes great faith that somehow God is going to be faithful through this. We have a choice just like Ahaz did. Will we humble ourselves or will we use our own wisdom, use our own abilities? Will we trust in the impossible, the supernatural, this son born to a virgin, this God with us? Let me ask you a question. When God doesn't show up on your timetable, do you lean on your own resourcefulness? When God doesn't answer in the way that you want, are you going to abandon ship and take control of things yourself? When God runs late, are you gonna get impatient? When God offers the way of salvation through the supernatural, through the impossible means of a baby born to a virgin, will you look another way that fits to soothe your intellect and your own wisdom? You see, Christmas is a reminder that what looks impossible, even inconceivable is well within the power of God. 
Christmas is also a reminder that we are all in a desperate need of rescue and that God has come to meet that desperate need that we have. True for Ahaz, true for Joseph, and it's also true for you and I today. God offered hope to Ahaz in the hour of his despair, but Ahaz rejected it. But don't miss the fact that you and I are offered this eternal hope in the hour of our eternal despair. The question really of this story is, how are you going to respond to Emmanuel? What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us that are followers of Jesus? Well, this is God's king. This is God's Messiah. This is God's anointed one sent to set us free to heal And notice that the way he was sent was as a baby, born to a virgin in some out-back conquest of the Roman Empire. We wouldn't write this script. And this would not be the king that we would choose to trust in. A baby? Come on. Are you serious? But this king, Matthew says, is God with us. This is the king, the God king. And this is God's means of salvation for all who will trust in him. If you will not trust in him, this baby is the means of your eternal destruction. Do you see how these stories parallel? King Ahaz, not trusting God, this becomes, thank you very much, I appreciate that. This becomes a threat to him, right? And so what he trusts in is something of this world. It becomes his destruction. And yet we are invited to trust in God and his unfathomable provisions for us. And that somehow can become our salvation. So when we think about how all of this fits with us, it reminds us again, we are not saved by might. We're not even saved by effort. We're not saved by our own great wisdom. You know, when you think about the gospel, the way up is down and the way down is up. Everything is different in God's economy. So let me, let me ask you some questions to reflect on right now. Are you looking for another way out of your situation? Are you acting as the functional savior of your own life? It's your wisdom. It's your provision. It's your abilities. It's going to get you out of your situation. It's going to get you through life. Let me ask you another question. Is the miraculous nature of Jesus coming to us as a baby, is it just too much for you? You see, the heart of the gospel is the message that God is with and for his people. Do you see that in the original story? God wanted to see Judah succeed. He wanted to be there with them and say, listen, I will be your strength. I will be your hope. I will be your defense and your enemies will not overtake you. God's redemptive plan was really set into motion. If you think about it all the way back in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, then there was no stopping it. He established a people and a promise with them. I will be with you. He says this over and over again, nine times in fact. 
He promised it to Isaac, I will be with you. He promised to Moses, I will be with you. He promised to Joshua, I will be with you. Gideon, I will be with you. Israel, I will be with you. Judah, I will be with you. Each time he promises this, it's in the face of impossible odds. Isaiah 43, two. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. He did all of this because he's for us. He wants to be strong on our behalf. He did this because specifically he wants us to enjoy the joy of his love and a relationship with him. He came to be with us in Jesus, offering us hope in the face of the most impossible odds against sin and death, the most notorious enemies we could possibly have. And as his disciples, he then sends us with the promise that he will be with us as we go to the nations to proclaim the good news of the gospel. So again, what we've shown you is what Matthew starts with in the very beginning, he also ends with, with the Great Commission. What does the Great Commission say? Matthew 28, verse 20. Behold, what does it say? I am with you always. Emmanuel, God with us. Do you see how everything that he starts off with, he ends with? He tells us that this child is going to be the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of David, that great king, the son of Abraham, that promised miraculous child. And then what does he say? All authority has been given to me. That's the son of David. Go and make disciples of what? All nations, the promise that was given to Abraham. You're gonna be a blessing to the nations, son of Abraham. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the world, Emmanuel. God with us. You see, if all you celebrate is this very small story that you read out of a book and you go, oh, isn't that nice and special? You've missed the gospel. You've missed what the gospel is rooted in. You've missed the incredible grace that surrounds this gospel story. So many times we have rejected him. We have run from him only to our own demise. We have sought to answer our problems and our circumstances with our own wisdom and our own power only to our own demise, making things worse and worse over and over again. And we finally come to the end of ourselves. And what do we find? Not a judgmental God saying, I told you so, but a, judge, uh, but a gracious God who says, now will you trust me? I'm willing to forgive all of your rebellion. Take my hand. I want to be with you because I'm for you. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful thing to celebrate. Amen? Don't miss the story behind this incredible birth, miraculous to a virgin that was prophesied all the way, thousands of years before Jesus ever lived by this prophet in a very difficult circumstance with sin surrounding them because it's exactly what God delivered Jesus to rescue us from today. And the question is, will you respond like Ahaz or will you respond like Joseph? Let's pray. God, thank you for your promise. Thank you for your love for each one of us. Thank you for the promise of this incredible season where we begin to reflect on these things and these truths about your gospel. Lord, a, a story that is inconceivable, a story that is unfathomable for us 
to put our trust in a baby, to think somehow a baby is going to become a king, a baby is going, and born to a poor family in this outback conquest of the Roman Empire, nothing significant about him except the significance that you brought by making him the fulfillment of everything you told us in the Old Testament. Lord, may we trust in something bigger than our own wisdom and our own understanding. May we trust in a God that's bigger than what we can understand. That is what this story calls us to. And Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us the courage to respond in a way that is different than our human nature would respond. Lord, call us out of our darkness and out of our sin. Come and fight the enemies that surround us. We want to trust in you. Thank you, Jesus, for being Emmanuel, God with us, for fulfilling all the promises, for living that perfect life, and for becoming the sacrifice to set us free, for defeating death, hell, and the grave, the worst enemies we've ever faced, and giving us a hope of eternal life. Lord, we celebrate those things. We think about those things. Lord, we haven't given you your due praise and glory in all of this. But I pray in these next few days, next few weeks, that maybe we have some time off and maybe things slow down a little bit, at least for a day. And may we reflect on these great truths and great promises and how it impacts us, how it impacts our decision-making, how it impacts our relationship with others, with our family and friends, and ultimately how it relates to us as followers and what we are called to do to go to the nations, to represent our king, and to spread the good news. May you be honored and glorified in all of these things. And we ask it in the sovereign name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.